This is an ABC podcast. Good morning. This is Pacific Beat on ABC Radio Australia. Today on the show, Solomon Islands delegation in London prepares for the coronation of King Charles III on Sunday. There's a lot of uh, preparations going on in terms of rehearsals for the procession and parade. And the blockade at the Kokoda Trail in Papua New Guinea has been torn down, but locals aren't happy about the disruption. To have them blocking the uh, pathway like that was very embarrassing. We also hear from Tonga's first female female airline pilot about how she took to the skies. We packed picnic on Sundays. I dragged the kids down to Moorabbin, sat under the flight path of the approach aircraft and just watched aeroplanes. All that and more today on the show. I'm Priyanka Srinivasan. So glad to have your company. First, there are calls for the American FBI to investigate a Marshall Islands council over its use of two multi-million dollar trust funds. The funds were set up to compensate victims of nuclear testing on Bikini Atoll in the mid-1900s. Some locals worry money from the accounts may have been rapidly taken out, leaving locals with nothing for the future. But the council is asking people to calm down, saying things are not as bleak. Marion Farr with this report. It's money that thousands of people are banking on. Most people, you know, they'll go take out loans using that money as collateral and now they're being defaulted in banks. Four times a year, Bikini Islanders like Enoch Enoch receive a payment of about 100 US dollars. But in February, that money didn't come. I think the people in general are worried. The stipends come from a fund set up by the United States government in 1986 called the Bikini Claims Trust Fund. It's designed to compensate the people of Bikini Island in the wake of nuclear testing. Between 1946 and 1958, the US detonated 24 nuclear bombs around their island, forcing locals to relocate to nearby Kili and Edget Islands. Some, like Enoch Enoch, have moved to America, but are still entitled to the quarterly payments. He wants to know why he didn't receive his money this quarter. They're saying there's a problem with the trust managers is all that we've been told. The Bikini Claims Trust Fund is managed by the Killy Bikini Edget local government, known as the KBE local government. In a lengthy statement last month, KBE Mayor Anderson Gibbous said the delayed payment was due to an issue raised by the trustee of the KBE funds. The trustee of the KBE funds decided they have to resolve certain technical issues about making changes in the 1986 Claims Trust Fund agreement and had to stop distributions until those issues were resolved. Waiting to resolve those issues, coupled with poorly performing stock markets in fiscal year 2022, the trustee stopped access to KBE's funds for the time being. Mayor Gibbous did not provide details about the technical issues or changes to the trust fund mentioned in his statement. But he said the KBE local government was looking into taking out a short-term loan to cover the payments. He told residents things are not as bleak as they're being portrayed and urged them to calm down. But Enoch Enoch isn't satisfied. There is the money running out, for one, and they're 
being no backup for our people in the future. He's also worried about money held in a different US government trust account called the Bikini Resettlement Fund. That fund was worth over $100 million after it was set up in 1982. It's used to pay salaries to local government workers, entitlements to past workers, and to compensate locals for the cost of power and groceries. Previously, the KBE government could only access 5% of the fund each year, but in 2018, Mayor Gibbous seized more control of it. Jack Needenthal, the Marshall Islands' former health secretary, opposed the move at the time, testifying in front of Congress. This is going to cause a lot of corruption and they were just going to spend the money and it's going to be gone and please don't do this. Five years on, Mr Needenthal is concerned about the balance of that fund. We're trying to find out how much money we have and how they're spending the money. There's no budgets, there's no audits, there's no nothing. Both the US Department of Interior and the KBE local government have not responded to Pacific Beat's detailed questions on the matter. In his statement last month, KBE Mayor Anderson Gibbous said the government had over tens of millions of dollars in trust fund monies and millions of dollars in assets. He says taking control of the resettlement fund was necessary to meet the needs of his people. The US was telling us our annual operating budget could be no more than $3 million or $4 million for operations for the whole year. Operations included maintaining life on Killy and Edget Island, food, fuel, scholarships, honorariums for former council members, salaries for employees, cash, power, etc. Just those expenses alone run close to almost $9 million per year. After I was elected as mayor, I was able to accomplish a major change to the Bikini Resettlement Fund, and immediately we were able to take control of our destiny. But Jack Needenthal believes there needs to be more transparency. Before becoming health secretary, he was the trust liaison for the people of Bikini under the KBE government. Anyone at any time could come into my office and ask how much a trust fund is worth, and I could give them the answer within five minutes. In late March, while serving as the Secretary of Health for the Marshall Islands, he wrote to the US government asking the FBI to investigate the current state of the funds. So what I was asking them was, we want those two trust funds audited. We want to know where this money went. The US Department of Interior has not confirmed if an audit will take place, but the move costs Mr Needenthal his job. Last month, he was dismissed for breaching government protocols by sending the letter from his official government email address. It was on my Secretary of Health email and it had my signature at the end, yes, but the very first sentence is, I'm writing to you as a private citizen. To me, it's a very small breach of protocol. It wasn't a big deal. But again, there are a lot of people who really wanted me out. RMI Chief Secretary Kino Kabua told the ABC there was nothing personal about Mr Needenthal's dismissal, saying he'd been subject to other breach of protocol complaints. Mr Needenthal says it's disappointing, but he doesn't regret sending the letter. All I was trying to do was find out how much money we had. And I don't know what the great crime is there. They're all upset about an email address usage. They're not upset about the 70 to $100 million that's gone unaccounted for. I mean, it's really absurd. A KBE local government election will be held in September and concerns about the two funds are already front of mind. Marsha Note, 
who's running for mayor, says it'll be a key part of his campaign. There has to be accountability. We need to account to the people we're using their money. Tell them what we're doing with their money. And that was Marsha Note, who's running in the next KBE election, ending that report by Marion Farr. Pacific Beat. Now to Papua New Guinea, where a blockade into the Kokoda track set up by angry workers has been torn down after police ordered them to do so on Tuesday night. The frustration stemmed from a trekking company's license cancellation over allegations of unpaid trekking fees, a claim the company denies. But many feel the damage of the protest will linger for a long time. PNG correspondent Tim Swanston joins us this morning. Good morning, Tim. Can you tell us how did this all start? Good morning. Yeah, well, ultimately it came down to Adventure Kokoda. They're a very large trekking company here in Papua New Guinea that runs treks along the Kokoda track and their alleged evasion of paying trekking fees. Now, in a statement in cancelling their licence last week, the Environment Minister Simon Kalepa alleged that they uh, had an attempt to evade paying their trekking fees, which under PNG law they're required to pay so that people are able to walk the Kokoda track. Now, it's an allegation that the company does deny, and there's been a fair bit of back and forth between both the Kokoda Track Authority as well as the company Adventure Kokoda on this. Um, But what we saw out of that cancellation uh, last week is that over the weekend, uh, many workers for Adventure Kokoda, these are Papua New Guineans who work as porters and guides for Adventure Kokoda, set up these massive blockades, um, both at the north and the south entrances to the Kokoda track. Um, so, you know, at the south entrance there near Sogeri, uh, which is just um, down the road from Owa's Corner where the track starts, there were dozens of men wearing Adventure Kokoda shirts that had set up this sort of makeshift barricade there on the road. Um, and, uh, yeah, when tour groups were you know, arriving to get let into the track, um, they weren't letting them in. Now, we do understand that some groups did manage to get through to the Kokoda track and have started their trail, and they were also letting people out of the Kokoda track if, of course, they'd just finished it. Um, but, uh, yeah, it, 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 of course, you know, was quite a serious issue and one that, um, you know, has caused a lot of harm and a lot of hurt in the community as well. Um, but these protesters say that they were doing so basically to, you know, receive a further explanation as to why that licence was cancelled. And they were also seeking compensation for job losses. So, but at any rate, many are describing this as effectively a bit of a lose-lose kind of situation. Mm. And um, we understand that blockade was uh, taken down. Do we know how that unfolded? Yeah, so police, um, well, of course, you know, there there was a lot of negotiation between the track authority and police as well as the protesters, Um, but it's understood that on Tuesday night, police sort of finally gave them the, you know, move on order, Um, and so that meant that the... uh, 
the men uh, removed the blockades there from that southern entrance there at Sugeri. I believe, uh, you know, a little bit earlier on the northern entrance, the blockade had already been removed. So that that came down on uh, on Tuesday night. Um, so there's trekking groups that will be coming through later in the week now um, and they'll be able to uh, get through unimposed. Mm. Um, now, you said that the, the um, situation on the ground was a bit mixed. Uh, how do people, the locals in Sugeri, affect uh, feel about the blockade yeah it's it's you know of course really vexed really challenging issue like you know you've got of course you know the men and the landowners who work for adventure kokoda you know Mm. this is quite a large percentage of the market and for them it was a really important you know protest they felt that they were looking out for their jobs um, or rather you know wanted to make really clear that this will have a very large financial impact on them the license cancellation um, but then you have also others in the community who were actually, they, they told me that they felt quite embarrassed by the action, that they felt that it will cause some reputational harm to the track. Um, of course, there are a lot of people who financially rely on 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 trekkers, not just Adventure Kokoda, um, from people coming through. So, um, you know, we're all, 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 we're hearing at the moment that it sounds like trekking companies are losing quite a lot of prospective trips coming up as well. So mm-hmm. that could lead to quite some, you know, serious financial consequences. I spoke to Mary. She uh, runs the local market there at Sigeri, um, and she was quite disappointed by the uh, by the blockade. To have them blocking the uh, uh, pathway like that was very embarrassing, really affected me very badly because I thought about those of us who benefit from the trekking companies. It will affect the children, school fees, clothing, medicine, and you name all those other basic needs. So that's the view that you heard from um, one local there in Sigari, Tim. Um, what's been the ac- impact on um, local uh, other tour operators other than Adventure Kokoda? Yeah, so um, they're, they're already fielding quite a lot of inquiries about people wondering whether or not they should cancel. Like, ultimately, this has just caused a lot of uncertainty, mm-hmm. um, even though now it's entirely okay for for um, trekking companies and trekkers to be able to get through. Um, but regardless, they say that quite a fair bit of damage has already been done, um, that there have been groups that have, uh, you know, said that maybe they'll delay their, their trips to Kokoda Track um, or some sort of cancelling outright altogether. Um, so it's understood that some trekking companies are weighing up their legal options at this stage um, because it's, you know, it's quite likely or rather what they're saying is that there's quite a very, you know, very serious financial impact uh, from uh, from this blockade. Mm. I mean, uh, Tim, correct me if I'm wrong, but it, it, was it the same tour com- company, Adventure um, Kokoda, whose workers were behind this blockade? Um, were, were they the one that took um, that uh, Australian trekker uh, on the Kokoda track recently who who had that tragic death while while trekking. Does that tragedy have anything to do with what we're seeing here at all? No, it doesn't have anything to do with the licence cancellation. Um, the Environment Minister, Simon Kalepa, you know, in his statement about the licence cancellation, um, you know, it was about this alleged evasion of paying trekking fees. Again, a just, you know, a, an allegation the company denies. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, but yes, it was at Adventure Kokoda, um, uh, rather Paul Miller, um, the uh, Adelaide father and veteran um, who died um, was walking with Adventure Kokoda. This was uh, just prior to Anzac Day, 
um, and uh, his family believe that he had a heart attack while walking the track. Um, so he was airlifted from the track uh, to Pacific International Hospital here in Port Moresby. Um, but uh, no, the licence cancellation isn't related to that death. Mm. Okay, so so now we know this blockade, um, Tim, has been taken down, but there still doesn't seem to be, you know, any, any end, any resolution in sight, is it? Is there any idea of what kind of resolution can be reached here? Yeah, well, of course, yeah, so it has been taken down, but but ultimately these porters and landowners, you know, they're, they're out of jobs. You know, many of the other companies have suggested that, you know, hey, well, you know, we can potentially take you on board. Um, but as far as Adventure Kokoda's licence goes, um, the KTA, the Kokoda Track Authority, have said that um, they can apply for a, for a new licence if they um, pay, you know, quite a large fine, as well as also then, you know, basically have an undertaking to follow uh, the rules of the track from the the KTA, the authority. Um, but uh, as far at this stage as to whether that will happen, you know, we're not quite sure. So um, sort of we're in, I guess, a bit of this period of, well, the licence has been cancelled, the blockade has been over, but the futures are quite uncertain for, I guess, a lot of these men and, and for the company as far as what will happen going from here. Mm. And finally, Tim, before before you go, I, I wonder if you could um, touch on another scandal in Papua New Guinea um, that happened recently, and, and that was the ba- dramatic Bank of the South Pacific glitch um, over Easter that that um, resulted in in a lot of a lot of money being unintentionally overdrawn from people's accounts. Are there any updates to that case there? Yeah, that was pretty wild. Um, Bank South Pacific were uh, implementing a new banking system over Easter weekend. Um, And as a result of that new banking system, this sort of technical glitch allowed people to withdraw just serious amounts of cash from ATMs, um, severely overdrawing their accounts. Um, So we finally got a statement from Bank South Pacific just the other day about the amount that was overdrawn. And they said that um, over that weekend, it was about 8 million kina um, that was overdrawn from, uh, you know, accounts total of something more than 30,000 people. Um, so which about three and a half million dollars Australian mm-hmm. or so. So quite a considerable amount of cash that was, um, uh, you know, overdrawn from accounts over that weekend. Now, they say that about three quarters or so has been paid back at this stage. So they said that, um, look, you know, people can pay it back without any penalties or, um, you know, interest or anything like that. Um, so there's still about 2 million Kina or so um, that needs to be uh, paid back to Bank South Pacific from customers. But yeah, pretty extraordinary that mm-hmm. that amount of cash was able to be over overdrawn because of that technical glitch over the over the weekend. So just remains to be seen as to when that when that remainder will be uh, paid back by uh, by Bank South Pacific customers. Yes, yes, Tim, extraordinary indeed, and also extraordinary in my my uh, eyes that that people have um, gone to to pay uh, back. You said three quarters there, which um, I, I wouldn't have expected. So <laughs> interesting. Interesting news there. Uh, Tim, thank you so much for joining us this morning on Pacific Beat. You're welcome. That was Tim Swanston. He's ABC's correspondent there in Papua New Guinea, touching on, well, not only that blockade and the Kokoda track, but also that dramatic overdrawn withdrawals of those um, ATMs from the BSP. 
You're listening to Pacific Beat this Thursday morning. I'm Priyanka Srinivasan. This weekend, the world will watch as King Charles III is crowned as the ruler of the Commonwealth. To mark the occasion, delegations from the Pacific are in London preparing for the big day. That includes the Solomon Islands. And reporter Caroline Tiraman spoke with its government's director of communications to find out their plans. Since we arrived on Monday with the Governor General of Solomon Islands, I have seen a lot of uh, excitement going on. Uh, I can also see that there's lots of uh, international visitors here in London. And some I have spoken to have said that uh, they are here to witness the coronation of King Charles III on Saturday. Also, there's a lot of uh, preparations going on in terms of rehearsals for the procession and parade, as well as uh, a lot of uh, roadblocks, security checkpoints. I think it's uh, their probably their plan towards the providing security during the coronation uh, program. Those rehearsals taking place in the streets of London or are they near the palace or where are these rehearsals taking place? Uh, yesterday I, I, I was watching a rehearsal at the British Royal Forces headquarters just outside of Buckingham Palace and the the British forces, uh, platoons from the various British uh, departments, uh, force departments have been rehearsing the their parade and uh, their marches. And also there's a lot of uh, uh, arrangement at the entry of the Buckingham Palace as well as the Westminster Abbey. Uh, in terms of uh, processions, uh, the Solomon Islands uh, delegation representatives will be uh, joining others to rehearse their procession. Of- Have you seen other representatives from other Pacific Island nations also rehearsing for the big day? Well, well, I, I guess everyone's going to be uh, together, uh, rehearsing together on Thursday. Uh, since we arrived, I have not seen any Pacific Island representatives around. I think uh, they've been uh, staying in other hotels or other places but we hope to see them, everyone, on uh, Thursday. Who's leading the Solomon Islands delegation to the coronation of King Charles? Uh, The Solomon Islands delegation is led by the Governor-General and uh, Lady Mary Bunagi, and also our Minister of Foreign Affairs and External Trade and uh, the Solomon Islands High Commissioner to Britain, who is based in Brussels as well as some official delegations from the government. These delegations from the Commonwealth nations, are they going to be presenting any gifts or what's going to happen? I haven't actually seen the the official program yet. Uh, we, we hope to get that by Friday or Thursday this week. But I guess there's going to be some special uh, ceremonies in terms of gifts or presents or or some special meetings by heads of uh, states with the newly coronated king. So I guess it's uh, excitement galore there, you reckon? Yes, there's a lot of excitement. There's a lot of people, and um, I can sense that uh, people are really looking forward to the the coronation ceremony, especially from the Solomon Islands delegation. The Governor-General, Sir David Bunagi, has expressed uh, honour and uh, is pleased to be part of the coronation ceremony of King Charles, who is also the head of state of Solomon Islands.
His coronation um, has been a long time coming after his mother was crowned so many years ago. So this is like a, a special event for those born between the coronation of his mother, Queen Elizabeth, and him. Yes, uh, for Solomon Islands, it is a very special moment because uh, when his mother, Queen Elizabeth II, was coronated in June 1953, Solomon Islands was uh, still a British protectorate. We haven't got independence during that time, and it's uh, 25 years before the Solomon Islands gained independence. So it's a special moment, and it's going to be the first time that a Solomon Islands official delegation is going to witness the coronation of a monarch. You are going to witness it, so how are you feeling <laughs> right now? Well, personally, I'm, I feel very honored and proud to witness this very rare occasion because uh, when the Queen was coronated, I was, uh, I think my father is still a young boy and uh, now I'm able to witness the coronation of another monarch. So it's a proud moment for me and it's real privilege. That was a George Herming, a director of communications with the Solomon Islands, speaking to Caroline Tierman from London about the coronation preparations. Love sport? Tune in to Can You Be More Pacific with Sarah Nangama and Dean Halatau. Jerry Tawai will not be part of the run-on team. Now, this is the first time in five years after the men's team had won the Hong Kong Sevens that he will not be featuring. Yeah, no good for Fiji. For any fans of Fiji, they'll not see him out in the field. Jerry is the king of Sevens. Oh, I probably shouldn't say that because that could rub the Serepi fans quite wrong. <laughs> Can You Be More Pacific? Thursdays from 6 PNG time on ABC Radio Australia. That's right. It's time here on Pacific Beat to find out what's making news from around the region. And to do that, we're joined, as always, by Kyle Evans. Good morning, Kyle. Good morning, Priyanka. Um, let's start with another embassy opening, another U.S. embassy opening. We've heard of a few opening and we've had um, the announcement of, of yes, a, a bit of a Pacific ramp up, I guess, when as, as far as U.S. embassies are concerned. Now we have one from in Tonga opening in the coming weeks. When exactly can we expect that? That's right. So uh, the top U.S. diplomat uh, for East Asia, his name is Daniel Crittenbrink, has said the United States is on track to open a new embassy in Tonga later this month. So this is reported by The Guardian. And uh, as we know, it comes as part of an effort to uh, greatly step up its uh, diplomatic presence uh, in the Pacific region. Yes. And has he given any uh, timeframes on, on embassies and other parts of the Pacific? We heard of a couple opening already, right? Yeah, that's right. There's been a few. And uh, and the, to answer your question, the answer is no, but uh, he said they were continuing to engage uh, with Vanuatu and Kiribati. I believe those are the next two on the list to potentially receive an embassy. Um, so still in talks uh, with those countries about an embassy there. Meanwhile, PNG uh, Foreign Minister Justin, Thank Justin uh, Chethanko, uh, he actually said on the weekend that they hope to sign a new security deal with the US uh, when Joe Biden stops in PNG on the 22nd. Yes, Foreign Minister Chichenko, yes, talking about that, um, that security 
security deal that's been negotiated for, for quite some time now, a few no- months with the United States. Um, uh, very interesting to see what that agreement will detail once it does all, all happen. And also very interesting to find out about that that meeting with um, Biden and and. Um, Pacific leaders as well, and what else might be on those agendas apart from security. Um, now, Kyle, let's head to French Polynesia. We had results uh, from the election, the, those historic results, um, with um, for after a number of years in sort of independence, pro-independence uh, party being elected. Um, now, the presidential candidate has named two women in his cabinet. Can you tell us more? That's right. So uh, Motai Brotherson has named uh, four ministers uh, in his proposed cabinet, uh, naming two men and two women as ministers. They'll be part of a 10-member government, uh, which is actually expected to be made up mainly of women. So this is reported by the uh, Asia-Pacific Report, and uh, and this, of course, comes after his pro-independence party, the Tavini Hui Rotira, won 38 of 57 seats in the territorial election. Yes, quite a historic vote there, and... uh... Um, you know, will be very interesting to see if that, um, I guess, pro-independence um, influence might uh, change the way government is done there in French Polynesia and what, what that means for, I guess, the independence movement there, which has been obviously bubbling along. Um, French Polynesia remains a, a territory of France. Um, now, do we know when Mr. Brotherson will take over the presidency? Um, according to the report, the Assembly uh, is all but certain to make him the president uh, once it meets later, z- later this month and, uh, and once confirmed he'll vacate his seat uh, in the French National Assembly. Interestingly, he's also vowed to decrease the cost of government, saying nobody would earn more than a US $23,000 a month. Mm, very interesting. Um, let's see Yes, if he, if he has any other dramatic policies that he might mm-hmm. put in place. Um, and now to some uh, sporting news. Well, the Pacific Games feels like it's just around the corner in a few more months now um, and it's been given another multi-million dollar boost. Why is that? That's right. So uh, New Zealand's come to the party. Uh, their government has committed $3 million to the Solomon Islands to assist with its preparations. Uh, that's according to InsideTheGames.com uh, and the money was formally handed over at a special ceremony held at the New Zealand High Commission in Honiara. So New Zealand, that they now join Australia, Indonesia, Papua New Guinea, Japan and of course China as countries who have provided financial aid for the upcoming event. Yes, and there's been a bit of criticism as reported um, here on Pacific Beat by our reporter Liam Fox around that foreign aid donation mm. to the Pacific Games. Um, you might have heard, Kyle, there's been you know people saying, well, is it Pacific Games, you know, these constructions of stadiums, of these... Um, uh, of this really one event, um, is that a worthwhile use of, of development money that, you know, usually goes to other public public funds um, like public health, like, you know, even fitness or, or other um, things related to sport, but not necessarily a, a big event like the Pacific Games. Um, so in this case with New Zealand, do we know what their money will be used for? <laughs> I can't say I know exactly where the money is coming from, but similar to that money Australia has allocated, um, it's going to go towards the game, the games, yes, but it will have a legacy uh, impact as well after the game. So uh, 
the money will upgrade facilities for athletes and officials with disabilities specifically, uh, as well as some additional money for sporting equipment. And it's understood that that equipment is set to be used by the Solomon Islands National Institute of Sport after the Games wrap up. Okay. All right. So I guess there is an argument to be made that some of this equipment, some of the infrastructure might be used um, later on by Solomon Islands and, and its people. I mean, we saw that in Samoa when it hosted the Pacific Games. I believe some mm-hmm. of its... Um, uh, some of the facilities are now used by schools and, and you know, other things. So there are arguments. There are two sides to every coin. But, yes, there is that concern that, you know, some of this big, big money spending is, is going mainly to, you know, prop up geopolitics. I mean, you know, counter China, <laughs> as, as we, we always say. So, yeah, I mean, it would be interesting to hear what listeners think. Do get in touch if you have, you know, one viewer or another. Do you think this, these multi-million dollar um, donations given by foreign countries could be better spent than the Pacific Games? It's a worthwhile question. Does, yeah. should sport count as foreign aid? <laughs> yes, indeed. Or sporting events in particular. Um, very, very interesting there. Um, Carl, thank you for the stories. Thank you, Priyanka. That was Carl Evans bringing us the latest from around the Pacific. But coming up on the show, we'll be hearing from Tonga's first female airline pilot. We'll be finding out about her journey to become a pilot and take to the skies. And it's quite an unusual one. So do stick around for that. listening to Pacific Beat this Thursday morning. Pacific Island workers play an integral role in putting food on Australian plates every day. But how important is the scheme to Pacific Island nations? Reporter Lucy Cooper spoke with Nora Omot, who works as a country manager for the Australian Centre for International Agricultural Research, or ACR, in Papua New Guinea, and started by asking how many people make it to Australia as part of the Pacific Mobility Scheme. Well, compared to the other Pacific Islands, um, PNG has a smaller number, but I think that discussion is on the table now. And like two weeks ago, the, we had the agriculture minister in PNG talking to the ministers in Canberra. So there's some uh, maybe more arrangement of how to you know um, grow that uh, in the future. Uh, but it is an opportunity for a lot of the um, people in PNG going to work in uh, Australia on that on the kind of arrangement. And I think that we, uh, one thing that probably like we have a lot of the issue, the social issues, is because of the unemployment. And that is a big, so, you know, like this, when this kind of opportunity is there, like people are like, keen to, you know, participate and, uh, but of course, there's always the challenge or the requirements that you have to, to meet to be um, on this kind of opportunity. Yeah. And I recall, like last month or two, there was a, there was a, like a walk-in interview asking for 100 people, and more than 2,000 people turned up. So that was chaos, like in that area with the traffic and everything. So that just shows again, like you know, when there's opportunity. And we had, there was some discussion yesterday, or we keep hearing about. Um, um, issues about um, labor migration from the Pacific Island to Australia and all that, and and how to you know the the leaders in the region asking you know, how do we actually stop that kind of migration? But it was also brain drain, right? So it means like those that are well educated and and have the ability to contribute to the to the Pacific Island are not there anymore. They're moving us. So how do we actually ensure that capacity is built and retained? Um, in the Highlands region. Yeah, it's a massive issue that is facing really every Pacific Island nation 
how do you retain those skilled workers? Uh, are you fearful that if agreements are made with the Australian government for more people to be granted a visa to work in Australia and predominantly in farming, that PNG will lose uh, what would be considered some of their best skilled workers? I think it depends also on um, what's on the table in terms of the agreement, like what Australia is actually really looking for. So, yeah, it depends uh, because it would be more the environment that would be more attractive uh, if this kind of opportunity opens up for people with different skill range. So it can be like the whole range. So, because right now they're doing on the farm, uh, but if they open up uh, that skill range, then... Yeah, and if it's attractive and there's opportunity, that people would definitely want to to move. Do you think, though, it might not help your unemployment issues because those who are unemployed aren't taken to Australia, it's the skilled workers instead? I think it depends also um, because um, if the skills required by the local organisations are not there, you know, you still need to to build up that capacity. So un- unemployment should still be a problem. But if they do take on people, you know, you're not going to get quality out of uh, yeah, that employment. So That was Nora Omat, ACA country manager in Papua New Guinea, speaking there with Lucy Cooper. Silva McLeod was Tonga's first female airline pilot flying with Royal Tonga Airlines, Australia's Australia's Royal Flying Doctor Service and Virgin International. Her memoir is just published, Island Girl to Airline Pilot, A Story of Love, Sacrifice and Taking Flight. ABC's Julian Morrow spoke to Silva about her pilot career and where it all started in Tonga. A tiny little island. It's about 200 people living there. We had a thatched roof hut, no running water, no gas, no electricity. We go and fetch the water from a well, uh, carry it back to the house. We light the fire, cook our food. Um, with not too much future in an eye of, an un- of a young girl, mm. Uh, growing up in a little village, very loving. That's all I can say. No, very. No, I, 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 I hear it loud, loud and clear. But but a very <laughs> traditional lifestyle as well. And I suppose that came with traditional expectations, which I think it's fair to say, Silver probably didn't include you ending up as uh, a commercial airline pilot. Is that right? Definitely not. Mm. Um, however, I'm sure my grandparents would have have a dream of seeing me. Um, married, have kids and be happy. Like all us parents, that's all we wish for our Mm, kids, mm. safety and happiness. Never in their wildest dream, never in my wildest dream. Mm. But it's probably also true, isn't it, that that dream of you being happily married and probably having quite a few kids was probably a dream (laughs) that involved um, you marrying uh, a a Tongan man, is that right? That is true, because yeah. where else are you going to meet any outside? Well, fair point. Um, <laughs> but I, I suppose one of the really interesting things that you write about in your memoir is the way that the relationship between you, a Tongan woman, and Ken, a white Australian man, was received in your respective families and cultures. Uh, could you tell us a little bit about the, that process of uh, reception and acceptance? Sadly to say, it had 
been like this, that white men or um, outside people came in and it's always finished up with a um, unwanted pregnancy and so forth. So, mm. of course, the initial reaction when Ken and I start courting is Ken was so far above my standard. What is he doing with me? What am I doing with him? The results of that couldn't be any good outcome. That was the expectation. Um, thank goodness that Ken had uh, proved to them that he was there for the long haul and he respected my culture and eventually earned the trust and the love, not only my family, the village, the community. It is absolutely beautiful for years to come when we visited Tonga, the, the, the way my people receive Ken. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that you write about in the early stages of your relationship with Ken was that you shared with him your your dream or your fantasy of uh, flying. Uh, can you tell us about that? Yes. <laughs> I can just see the whole event unfold in my eyes every time I speak about it mm. because, um, as I often say, and I'm going to repeat it, it was one of my weakest moments because prior to Ken, I never said boo to anyone about that fantasy because Normally, if you have a little bit of high expectation like that, you'll be mocked at, laughed at, Mm. and uh, it'll be the biggest joke of the village. So I held it close to my chest until I felt that, you know, by this stage our relationship is getting a little bit serious. Maybe I've trusted him and uh, he looks a little bit of a trustworthy kind of guy and (laughs) And thought, well, he lives in Australia. If he doesn't eventuate this courtship, then, you know, my little secret is safe. (laughs) He's going to take it with him. Um, And then uh, when he asked me whether I have any dreams, and I sort of say, okay, I'm going to let you in on a little bit of secret fantasy. And I told him he was a little bit disappointed because I think he was angling at having kids and getting (laughs) married. (laughs) <laughs> and I'm looking at him and I said, no, that's come naturally. <laughs> you know, that's a process of uh, life that you will become a wife and raise kids. But um, there was that fantasy of um, of being a pilot or fly an aeroplane, really. Uh, could you tell us what happened in 1980? Uh, it's a year that uh, Ken swept me <laughs> off my feet. <laughs> And, uh, yeah, gave birth to a wonderful life in Australia. But you made him work hard <laughs> for it, didn't you? Because cause I know that he proposed to you once or he asked you to marry times. him and it was only on the third time and when he got down on a knee that you actually uh, gave him the positive answer. That's right, isn't it? I think I read too much rubbish, as he always say. You know, <laughs> magazines say, you know, you see all these people on their knees with flowers and rings in their mouths. It didn't happen like that. Well, but, and and you, were ve- you were very understanding when he apologised for the fact that he couldn't get a ring because there wasn't one on the island. Yes. I thought you, you, you cut him a bit of slack there, which was great. But yes. obviously that was a significant <laughs> year because you got married and you moved uh, to Australia. Now, that doesn't immediately lead to you becoming a pilot, though, Silver. When and how did you become a pilot? Well, it's funny, but Ken's dream came in the way, you know, stood in the way. The, the wife, the kids, the yeah. motherhood, the bills the, and everything else. And up until Ken got diagnosed with his bone marrow cancer, uh, 
and I never, we never spoke about my little fantasy. Mm. However, between that time, my fantasy for flying was still there because we packed picnic on Sundays. I dragged the kids down to Moorabbin, sat under the flight path of the approach <laughs> aircraft and just watched aeroplanes. And um, up until Ken got diagnosed with his cancer, I went to kiss him goodbye at Peter Mac in Melbourne. And when he hugged me, he said, do you still want to fly? Uh, I nearly bolted out of his embrace. And I'm sort of thinking, where did that come from? Uh, maybe he was just still confused, full of drugs and <laughs> chemotherapy. God knows he's not thinking well. And um, then I came home and we never spoke about it because there were a lot more important things to do is concentrate in getting him back to health. Mm. Uh, when we were sort of given maybe five years, how long a piece of string was the answer. Um, Ken got better and then it wasn't until six months down the track, my following birthday, he gave me the $20 gift voucher for introductory flight. Mm, that was and a very, a very a, faithful gift voucher. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I might be cheap on that day, but it cost him a lot more afterwards. <laughs> Absolutely. That was a Silver McLeod, Tonga's first female pilot, speaking there to the ABC's Julian Morrow. And that brings us to the end of Pacific Beat for this Thursday morning. And I just wanted to remind you of our top stories today. We heard from some locals in the Marshall Islands who feared a trust fund that was set up to compensate victims of nuclear testing was being drained by the council. They're saying there's a problem with the trust managers is all that we've been told. Now, the council does dispute those accusations. Um, and also at the top of the show, we got the latest from PNG's Kokoda track, where locals who were employed by one of the two operators, that was Adventure Kokoda, had blockaded the trail, not preventing tourists to accessing that very popular hike. Um, that blockade has been taking, taken down, but there were growing frustrations from locals about the disruptions. To have them blocking the uh, uh, pathway like that was very embarrassing, really affected me very badly because I thought about those of us who benefit from the trucking companies. It will affect the children, school fees, clothing, medicine, and you name all those other basic needs. If you want to revisit any of those stories or anything else from today's show, you can find all those stories on our ABC Pacific website. You can type ABC Pacific, Pacific Beat into your search engine and take you there. Otherwise, the website is uh, abc.pacific.net.au. If I'm mistaken, I'm probably getting that wrong. ABC News, I think, is somewhere in there. Anyway, use your search engine. That'll take you there. Um, I'll be back uh, next week because tomorrow we have that special special sports segment of Pacific Beat with Richard Hewitt. You can join uh, him at 6am PNG time tomorrow morning. Otherwise, I'll be back next week. Have a lovely weekend, rest of your week. Until then, thank you for listening.